right, folks, we're jumping into Colossians. We have a doozy this morning, so uh, we're going to try to get right to it. Um, a tough text, a culturally sensitive text that we want to work through this morning. Remember, when it comes down to it, um, we as a church are committed to preaching through books of the Bible because, in large part, it forces us to tackle texts like we're about to see. Um, in large part, like we would probably not choose to cover a text like this. Uh, but for the Apostle Paul, even in his culture, even in his day, it was something of importance in recognizing how we might glorify Christ, live according to kingdom standards, even in amidst a culture that stands perhaps contrary to it. All right, so Colossians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 18. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Here we go. There's just no easy way to jump into this, unfortunately. <laughs> and we'll, we'll explain, we'll explain why, why Paul fronts this. Um, verse 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting, as is fitting in the Lord. That's your saving phrase right there. And husbands, love, love, sacrificially give of yourself to your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey, Judson, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And here's where, Judson, you get some feedback here, my direction. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. There's the home. Now Paul moves more or less to the workplace. He says, bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do in the workplace, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving whatever you're doing in the workplace you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and with God there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly, fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And verse 2, continue, steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving, at the same time, Paul says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And now he goes back to them saying, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We need God's help. Let's pray. We'll jump to it. 
Father, right now, we thank you that uh, your spirit is with us. Spirit, we confess according to your inspired word that your word does not return void, that it does revive our hearts. Even in tough texts like this, it revives our hearts. And so, Spirit of God, we pray that even this morning that would be the case, but then that you would grant us clarity with all the cultural fog that we live in, God, give us clarity. With all the pains that we've experienced in marriage and in the home, in the workplace, on the block, we ask that you would grant clarity to your word, that it would comfort our hearts. You do call us, you, you call us, you instruct us, but your instruction is always tethered together with your grace, your good, kind, comforting grace. So Jesus, would that be seen this morning as well? Would we see not just a bunch of commands, but would we see your wonderful, your wonderful heart behind it all? And would you be glorified? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the last couple of weeks, folks, we've seen the Apostle Paul now begin showing us in so many ways what it is for a Christian to live in this culture. If you look back to the beginning of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, seek the things that are above. And, and typically we think, all right, we're supposed to be heavenly minded, you know, someday in glory. We're supposed to have glory somewhere down the line upon our minds and upon our hearts. But that's not the, the idea that Paul paints for us. Paul is saying, actually what has taken place is the kingdom of heaven has crashed into this culture. When Jesus came, so did his kingdom. So that when Jesus was even put on trial before Pilate and others, Pilate was asking him, interrogating him, are you really a king? And Jesus says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. I have not come with my kingdom to dominate this world with sword and spear. I've come with grace and truth, right? That's the kingdom. Jesus says, my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's invading this earth. And for all those now who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, Paul has already stated, now Christ is living in you. His presence goes with you wherever you go. His kingdom is realized through you wherever you go. And therein, there is a clash between kingdom and culture. The values of the kingdom are not the values of the culture. The morals of the kingdom are often not the morals of the culture. There is a clash that we live in as Christians who live, as you might remember, kingdom down, not culture up, right? We don't make sense out of our existence by referencing culture first, by reading the tabloids and trying to get all the articles on a particular issue that I'm facing. No, I begin, what does God say, right? If Jesus, once again, is the creator of all things and the one who will reconcile all things to himself one day, and in the interim he holds everything up by the word of his power, we don't go to culture to figure out our issues, we go to Christ, we go to the king, 
He is the one who has created all things. He is directing all of human history to a goal, to an end, where he will be glorified and seeing all things reconciled to himself. So everything in life finds its true and ultimate meaning in Jesus. As Paul says, in him are hidden the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to understand truth? You got to get to Jesus. You got to get to the king, right? So what Paul then has been doing is saying, all right, how is this practically supposed to be lived out in real life? All right, so last week, we began to see that living kingdom down versus culture up. He, he says there's some things that you got to put off, and there's some things that you got to put on. He tackles the issue of sexual immorality. Culturally, all right, that's, sex is fair game, right? Whatever kind and however you want to get to it and however you want to make it happen, like that's just fair game in culture, right? For the kingdom, ain't the way it rolls. Jesus has said, I've designed sex. Sex is not a gross thing. Sex is a gift that I've given to my people to enjoy for my glory. And therein, the king sets the standards for how sex, that good gift, should function. And Jesus is pretty clear about it. It's defined for the covenant of marriage. Right? So we've seen Paul address issues of sexual immorality. He addresses issues of conflict and relational tension. And he addresses all the, the kind of the working out of those issues from the heart to the hands, right? From the motivations and desires within, actually, to the actions without. He says, like, if your heart is being drawn in those particular ways towards conflict and trying to establish justice on your own and tit for tat with other people, or you're, you're being drawn into sexual immorality in some ways, from the desire and motivation of the heart, it's to be cut off. It's to be put to death. Be careful what you watch. Like, every Netflix series, what, like, man, I enjoy Netflix, all right? Pastors don't go home, just pray and read the Bible all night long, okay? <laughs> it's like we go home and enjoy life just like you do. And so part of that is, like, we're, we're checking out Netflix, you know? Um, and so, so often I'm, I'm going on there, and I, I get about 15 minutes into a new season of something, and before you know it, there's some sort of drama taking place with some sort of sexual interaction. And it's like, okay, where's the, you know, where are the kids, you know, looking, okay, trying to hit the button to move this thing forward, you know. Uh, and, and then another 15 minutes in, oh, jeez, you know, you're going back and you're hitting it again. But if you allow yourself in those moments, and like, it's not about just like fast-forwarding through the ex explicit stuff. It's all the stuff that works up to that that begins pulling your heart, right? It's those things that Paul is saying, you better be very careful of and watchful of. That's of the culture, not of the kingdom, right? So Paul has been instructing, whether it's sexual error, whether it's conflict, right? And he's been telling you, hey, put on love, put on compassion and whatnot. And now he gets into some other tensions, kind of the frontline tensions between kingdom and culture. And so what he touches on is the home, number one, the workplace, number two, and finally, if you will, the block, living on the block, living in the city. And so we're going to cover those three categories. we got a lot to do, so bear with me as we push through uh, some of this. So let's begin. What does 
kind of the social construct of the kingdom look like lived out on earth, particularly as it relates to the home. Paul begins with husbands and wives. Now, we need to stop even here. Paul is speaking specifically of marriage. Now, marriage is often seen in one of three ways. Typically, marriage for people is everything, right? Like, I gotta get married to actually find some sort of significance in this life. It could be everything. Or for some, it could be nothing. Like, I'm gonna jump into a relationship, kind of do what I wanna do, but, you know, uh, whether marriage happens or it doesn't happen, it's just kind of this thing that maybe would be fun to do eventually, but that's really when, you know, the diapers and the mess and the stuff, and yeah, I'm just not too sure. So sometimes marriage is everything, sometimes marriage is what you wanna make it, it's really nothing, and then sometimes marriage is a very painful thing. Whether it's the home you grew up in or the relationships, the marital relationships that you've experienced. Hard, difficult, painful. Here's kind of just a quick caveat to all of this. Marriage is not everything. Marriage is a gift from God. He's everything, right? Marriage is not nothing. Why? Because marriage is ultimately a God thing. God designed it. He has good in store for it. For the roles that operate in it between husband and wife, the good gifts found there, the, the off children that come, the blessings they're in, the home, it, it's, it's a great gift that he has given to us. But also know this, that when marriage has been a painful thing, God just doesn't abandon you. As the one who designed it, as the one who has every good intention, kind of work and fabric in it, he is one who has mercy and grace for every brokenness and trial that you come across within the marriage. And if you have even a broken marriage, you can know this, that even, you know, the heart oftentimes is for your kiddos. God has your kiddos in his view. His mercy, his grace is not lacking. He is in what he has designed, and even when it is broken, he don't leave, right? He doesn't, he is there with endless grace and mercy to care for you. So, let that be a caveat to where we're going here. Marriage ultimately is a God thing, and so let's jump into it. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands, right? The question, I don't know about you, Paul, why do you go right there? Like, that is so weird to just jump into what is seemingly a culturally very sensitive issue. Why, Paul, do you begin with this? The point is, in our culture, this is the offensive point. This is like the point of tension. In Paul's culture, it would have been opposite. It would have already been recognized in many ways that this was, this was a hierarchical you know, society, and even when it came to the family unit, the, the, the dad was the one who, who actually, in some sense, owned the space on the top of the house, and he was the one that literally ruled over the house. The kids, the wife, they were to be downstairs. They needed permission to come see dad, who would typically be upstairs doing his hobby, having more or less his man cave on the upper level. right? So it was a hierarchical system. When it comes down to it, when it gets to that second part, husbands love your wives, that would have been the cultural tension point for them. For us, it's, it's a bit different. 
And so let's get at this idea, wives submit. Paul would have actually been, he would have bringing dual assault upon the guys by beginning with the wives. This is like a, this wouldn't have been the cultural custom to begin with the, the wives. But that's what he's doing. He's, from, he's saying, the wives are a somebody. That's what he's saying. They're a somebody. And so he's giving attention. He's giving care to the wives. Now for our context, now it becomes the tension point of wives submit. So we've got to understand in our own culture, in our own context, what this ultimately means. The fact of the matter is that when we look at Scripture, we realize that the roles and relationships within the marriage have been designed by God, but when sin entered into the world, God specifically said, <laughs> marriage is going to be a hard thing. There's going to be tension within marriage. You'll feel it, right? And so that's why Paul is saying that the work of the gospel now is something that redeems these roles, right? It doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect in any way, shape, or form on this side of glory, but nonetheless, there's going to be endless grace and mercy to see something of what God intended reclaimed in the here and now. So, Paul is saying, wives submit, what does this actually mean? i got to begin with what it doesn't mean. When it comes to submission, submission is not true of any other relationship to any other man. Right? It is confined to this covenant of marriage. Whether that be in the workplace or anywhere else, this is not something that is across the board, men and women. It is reserved specifically for the covenant of marriage between the husband and the wife. Submission is not true of any relationship to any other man. Second, submission is not being silent. It's not as though submission is just this, oh, quiet, oppressed kind of like posture and place that an individual needs to be in. That is not true submission. That's oppression, right? Submission also is not being inferior. It doesn't mean that you're less, of less value, of less dignity to that of your husband. Submission is also not being homebound, right? I don't know where we get the idea um, that women are just supposed to be kind of more or less jailed up in their own home, right? Yes. That is not true. Just read Proverbs 31. What a resourceful woman is found in Proverbs 31. She's out in the market. She's in the economic structures of the day. She's putting her gifts to use, her knowledge to, to use. She's being fruitful and even gaining a salary for her own home. She's out there doing work. So when it comes to submission, don't have this idea that, oh, this is some sort of captivity to the home. It's not about being homebound. Fifth, submission is not about being sidelined from leadership. I've given the illustration with our, our own marriage. Jody leads us in our finances. That's like a thing that she feels real sure about, you know? So it's like, hey, you, you, you have a burden for this, a passion for this, go for it, right? Lead us. Now I'm going to keep tabs on just, okay, how are we doing? What do you think, you know? But she largely leads us, and that's okay. To be in a place, as Paul is saying, of submission does not mean that you're not leading in other ways. Where, where, the, where the husband stands back and says, go, babe, do this thing, right? Utilize all your gifts for the good of this family. 
Submission is not being sidelined from leadership. Here's a nuance. Uh, submission is also not being just like blankly obedient. Submission does not equal obedience. Paul, will, that's actually part of the text here. Paul's going to say children obey in everything. Right? There's a distinction that even Paul is making here between submission and obedience. In other passages of Scripture in the New Testament, Paul will talk about, well, yeah, that your submission should be ultimately that which is godly, right? Don't let your husband lead you in ways that would be ungodly. Like, that's the boundary markers of your submission to him, right? So we don't want to see that submission equals obedience. It does, and if he's using that card, you know something's wrong, right? He's overstepping his boundaries, his God-given boundaries himself. Finally, submission is not the same from marriage to marriage. Our marriages are going to be different. Our wives are going to have different giftings and and different ways in which to contribute to the home, and there's going to be different weaknesses on the man's side of things that he's going to need the help and support of his wife in unique and different ways ways. So again, if it's not all of that, what is it? Well, I think simply put, it's simply honoring your husband as the head, as the one who carries kind of the responsibility of of initiative and leadership with the home and supporting him and his responsibilities to lead. And what Paul says is that is fitting to the Lord. He's saying like, this is part of God's good design. It's not to be like pushed up against. It's actually something to step into so you would know something, not just of the pleasure and goodness of a husband, but you would actually know the pleasure of your Lord, as it is fitting in the Lord, to honor your husband and to support him in his responsibilities to leave. Now, maybe you sit back and you say, uh, what if my husband's an unbeliever? How does this all work out? Like, he's not going to be exactly always leading me according to godliness and all this kind of stuff. Well, uh, the Apostle Peter will pick up that question, right? And he'll say, one of the best ways that you can actually lead your husband to the Lord is to submit to him, support his leadership, and honor him in all the ways in which he leads you in godly ways. They may not be explicitly godly to him, but in right ways, you know, before the Lord. Um, Peter is saying, let this same stuff apply because that's one of the greatest tactic strategies to actually win your husband to the Lord. All right, we've done enough there with the wives. If you got questions, we can, we can talk some of that out, because I know we're coming from different contexts and backgrounds. So when you hear, when you hear a text like this, I know I can just like, whoa, what is, what is going on here? So if you got questions, like, let's talk uh, afterwards. Husbands, then, must love your wives. It's the agape term. It's, it's the term used for God's love for the world in sending his son to die. It is not just, okay, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll give of myself until it becomes an inconvenience to me. It is stepping past the inconvenience, putting the cost on the line, giving of myself for the good of another. That's what headship in marriage is. You as husbands, taking the initiative to bear the cost of serving your wife and kiddos. You're you're on the front lines, not of just kind of pulling all the attention to yourself and everyone needs to serve me. No, you're the one on the front lines serving. 
right? You, you go to work all day. Yes, you're exhausted, right? And as you're getting in the car to go home, you better be praying because you're going home to work. You're going home to serve. Yeah, there it is. I get to serve her. This is the picture of Christ in the church. Did Jesus just kind of like give only to the point of like kind of inconvenience? No, he gave of everything. He gave of everything for the sake of the church. This is the model for husbands in leading, in leading their wives, in taking initiative and responsibility to say, I'm going to give of myself even when it costs. When I got to put the stupid PlayStation remote down, put the stupid PlayStation remote down, right? When I got to put the remote down, put the remote down. Serve your wife. Serve your kids. To get a little more specific, what is loving your wife? And, and I see loving your wife and headship as being synonymous. They equal one another, right? Um, headship is this, it, or is not this, I should say, is not ruling one's wife. This is not a place of rulership for you. That's like, uh, you know, that's only Jesus, right? You're not Jesus. Headship is servanthood. It's not rulership, right? Headship, this loving sacrifice, also does not mean self-exaltation. You know, it's kind of the leave it to beaver, come home and sit in my big chair and uh, uh, ask for, like, I want the hot meal and I want the slippers and the pipe. You guys bring everything to me. It's all about me when I get home. That is not headship. That is not true biblical love. Headship is not superiority. I don't stand over anyone in my home in significance and in worth. So what is this headship? What is this love? It's more of a responsibility than it is a right. It's a burden you carry in so many ways, right? It's the burden of responsibility that you carry to take initiative in serving your family. Headship, then, is an authority to serve. There, there you go, right? Headship is God giving you the right to serve your family. That's it. Headship is not something where I stand above pe the, those in my own home. It's actually that I see myself as one who stands below them. I serve them. I prop them up. I'm here for the good of others. Headship, then, is taking the initiative to lead. If your wife is always coming to you and say, hey, wake up, we got to do something here. You're not being, right, the husband that you should be. I'm getting smiles as I'm <laughs> saying some of this, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. If you notice, my wife is upstairs. <laughs> had that all planned out. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's going to hear about it. Uh, and, and finally, headship is being gentle and sensitive, right? Uh, the way I've always seen it within marriage um, is, is that my wife is a flower, right? It's kind of cliche. And yet, in those early years of marriage, man, tending to her as a flower, I was always pulling out the fire hose. You put a fire hose to a flower, you're not going to have much of a flower, right? 
And so it was learning, how do I come alongside of her delicately? And whether it's bringing instruction or even like critical criticism where it's, you know, careful criticism where I'm coming alongside of her, loving her in those ways, easy, careful, um, sensitive in those matters. Being a nice garden hose, not a fire hose to her. She's, she's a flower. It's being gentle and sensitive when it comes down to it. And again, folks, this headship then is ultimately then the example that Christ shows us. Like, you're not going to do this well without knowing something of Jesus, who has done it so well for us. You won't know how to care well if you're not receiving well from him. So, for, for guys, few, a few things. Here, here's how I would encourage you to kind of navigate through some of this. Ask her if there are any ways that you can serve her. Well, where am I lacking in my service to you? And ask this specifically, that um, ask her if she's reluctant to share any particulars with you because she's afraid of how you're going to react. Right? Sometimes she's not going to be honest with you because she, she knows the way you're going to react about it. Right? So ask her, what are the things that you feel like I'd react at? Um, and then second, ask her those questions. Second, take initiative to wash her with the word. That's Ephesians 5. Take initiative spiritually to care for her. And third, do things that are fun. Sometimes we, oh, Christian marriages got to be, you know, here, here, here it is, and all rigid. No, just go have fun. Like, God is really a God of fun. He loves laughter. He's designed laughter and humor and all those kind of things. So go have fun. Lead your wife in fun experiences. <laughs> have fun with her. All right, next thing. We're running out of time. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. All right. We're, we're, we're going to blitz through it. We're going to blitz through it. So that's the marriage. Paul goes on within the home. Children and parents, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. Now, being very careful, we also recognize that we live in a culture where, where children are not treated well. Right? So we have to have in view here that Paul assumes that there is a a loving home, a husband and wife that are caring for this child, and therefore Paul is saying, yes, in, in everything. But we know that there are broken homes and difficult situations for children where this would not be applicable, right? So we have to be careful. Don't think that Paul is just saying everything for every situation. No, we have to be careful here. And the point that Paul is making here and saying that children need to be obedient in everything is because biblically, our, a child's obedience to his or her parent is actually directly correlated to his regard or disregard for God. In some sense, then, your child comes to know God through you, the parent. So that's why Paul then goes on to say, don't provoke your children. Not just because you're going to get underneath their skin, but you're actually going to show them a wrong view of God. That is not how God would discipline. That's not how God would respond. That's not how God would treat you, right? So children are to obey, yes, in everything. And then parents are not, are not to be those who provoke their children to anger, right? It's, when it comes to parenting, it's important, just a few things to throw at you to make this nice and quick. When it comes to parenting, make your expectations 
and the repercussions God-centered. All right? Don't just, hey, do this, don't do this. It's to say, here's what God wants of you, right? And here are then the consequences for it. So make your expectations and the repercussions, the consequences, God-centered, God-focused. Second, make your expectations and the repercussions clear to your children. Like, there's nothing worse than a parent, like, changing the rules in the middle of the game. Remember that? You know, like, don't change the rules in the middle of the game. You can't do that. Well, oftentimes parents do that. There's not consistency. There's not known and understood expectations. It's just the parent kind of shooting from the hip in the moment of the circumstances. Number three, as parents, stick to your guns. In other words, be consistent. If you've set expectations, if you've set consequences, okay, stick to your guns. Folks, kids want to know where the line's drawn. And they're not always trying to step over the line to be rebellious. They actually want to actually know that you, you, you care and are serious about it. They want to understand exactly why it's wise not to do the things that you've called them not to do. So stick to your guns. Be consistent. Fourth, be patient and loving. Right? Parenting is a marathon, not a sprint. Right? So be patient and loving. Fifth, know this. You can't change your kid. You can't change your kid. Heart change is a God thing. You, you can lead them to the one who can ultimately transform them. You can bring conformity to them. Remember we talked about that, the, the difference between conformity and transformation? Right? You can make them externally conform to certain things. Just know one day they'll see, the, they'll see the lack of substance to that and eventually rebel from that. You want to be focused on the heart, right? And God can only ultimately change that heart, and so it's to recognize that you can't ultimately change their kids, and therefore, sixthly, pray for your kids and with your kids, right? Get before God. God, come and, come and do this work in our hearts. And, and seventh, then, be honest about your own mistakes as a parent, right? We think some of the greatest lessons that a child learns is from the wisdom of our mouths. No, it's not. It's actually from your own stupid mistakes and being open and honest about those. Dad failed in this particular way before you. Will you forgive me? And here's how I know now know that God's forgiven me, and here's the grace that I'm, I'm going to try to receive to make things right again, right? So be honest about your mistakes. Folks, when it comes down to this, this is parenting, if you will, kingdom down, not culture up. It's getting the God focus into these things. So this is the home. Secondly, see if I can narrow some of this. Secondly, kingdom living in the workplace. You have the home, you have the workplace. Now, when it comes down to it, you begin to see the terminology of bond servants and masters. Of course, from our culture, what we immediately do is freight kind of our own understanding of what slavery is according to the history of our own nation, transatlantic slave trade, and we, we begin to see everything through those lens. And we must be straight up. It's one of the most historically terrible and inexcusable realities that have taken place within our nation. And there will be accountability. God will avenge. He will. He'll bring vengeance. He has not forgotten what happened. He hasn't. He keeps perfect account of all of this. Right? So, it's careful to make sure 
that we don't take our cultural understanding and freight it in to what Paul is saying here because the context and history was different. It's not to say that there weren't significant abuses even in this time and day. But it was one of the ways in which if you were underprivileged or if you found yourself in debt, you could become a bondservant to an individual to actually begin paying off that debt. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he'll never, he'll, he'll never say that this system is wrong and unjust, but he will say that if you have the opportunity to free yourself, do it. Right? So... This is a bit different from our own culture and context, but it would have provided opportunity for people to kind of work their way up, so to speak, in the economic and social structure of the day. And so our modern day kind of equivalent to that would be employers and employees. And so for employees, pretty much what Paul says is don't work for man's approval. Right? In other words, Paul said it's bondage to go to work ultimately and always like, give, like seeking the approval of those above you, like getting caught up in the political kind of stuff of the workplace. He's saying this is ultimately bondage. Your aim in the workplace is to know this, that God has promoted you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's to recognize that God alone is your peace, and that God alone through Christ is your ultimate approval. You will never receive a greater significance and worth than what you receive in Jesus. Jesus died for you. He did all the work necessary for you so that in all your weaknesses, in all your limitations, in all your brokenness, you can stand before God approved, not on the basis of your own doing, but on the basis of his righteousness. You stand in Jesus, and when you go to the workplace, that doesn't change. Although your boss may be riding your back, although your boss may be wanting you to kind of work the angles and do things that are a bit unethical, you know, that would kind of compromise the Christian morals, the kingdom morals, it's saying no to that. I'm not going to do that because I ultimately, as Paul says, I'm not seeking man's approval. I'm seeking what is pleasing to my king. Because, as Paul gets here in the text, one day there's going to be a judgment. Guess who's going to sit on the throne in the midst of that judgment? It ain't going to be your boss. Right? Your boss will not have the final word on the day. Jesus will have the final word on the day. And therefore, Paul says, don't be a people pleaser. No, do all that you do within the workplace to please the one that one day you will stand ultimately accountable. And then, and then he flips the script. All right, Masters, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, you better walk with sobriety, <laughs> carefulness, because the people you manage, the businesses you run, the entrepreneurial efforts that you do, you better be careful in those moments because one day, right, you as well will stand before, before the ultimate master. The one who has authority over all things, you will give an account. And once again, what we see in all of this is that Jesus is not aloof somewhere right now. What he is doing as the judge of all things is he's taking meticulous account of all the difficulties and the hardships that you're going through in the workplace. 
And whether it's that of employee or employer, you will stand accountable to him as the one who will bring justice in every way. He will reconcile all things to himself. Therefore, when it comes to the workplace, it should be something in which you are seeking to please the Lord before pleasing anyone else. And as the employer, you are to be the one who's saying, yes, I will stand accountable one day before the Lord. I want to please him. All right, thirdly, we blaze through that. Thirdly, there's another sphere, and, and I'm, I'm going to refer to this as kingdom living on the block. Paul encourages the church in the everyday stuff of life, and it's life on the block, if you will, that you see in verse 2 and following where he says, kind of in the everyday stuff of life, continue steadfastly in prayer. Isn't it true, folks, that we live in this age of, like, consumerism? Um, quick, you know, easy, I want what I want, and I want it now, so if I, if I, if I want a hamburger, there, there's McDonald's, there's Burger King, I can get it immediately. If I want to order something online, man, I can go to Amazon Prime, it's going to be there in two days, and so this becomes a, a lifestyle of consumerism and convenience. What I want, I get it now. Interestingly enough, Paul is saying when it comes to kind of everyday life on the block, it should be something where you're continuing steadfastly in prayer. It's got this ongoing, like, slow but sure plodding along of this, of this prayer life. And why? Why is it so important that those of us who are, who are so used to convenience and consumerism would, would be challenged by this, okay, the slow plodding? The fact of the matter is what Paul is alluding to here is that there is a God who, he's not good with just being your genie in the bottle. He's not good with just being your Amazon Prime, right? Who when you're in trouble and when you're in need, okay, you know, quick jump on and he's going to dish it out to you. He wants a relationship. It's the very picture that we began with, with the, with the tree and, and then the branches, he wants an ongoing, consistent relationship with you where you're leaning into him, you're, you're, you're communing with him, you're putting your needs before him. And why doesn't he answer me? You know, I think if God, if God would just answer us in all the ways that we would want to be answered, we, we'd end up like a spoiled child. I don't give my kids everything they want in the moment that they want it, sometimes even when it's in moments of crisis, because I know it's not best for them. But I do want them to be trained, and whether there's good moments or whether it's difficult moments, to be leaning into dad, right? I want to be there. I don't just want to be dishing out what they need. I want a relationship with them. Folks, that's the reality here. When it comes to life on the block, don't forget God wants a relationship with you. Not just so you would get kind of Christian convenience and consumerism, but that you would actually have an ongoing relationship with him. Now what Paul then goes on to say, it's amazing stuff what he references here. We'll be returning to some of this in the coming weeks. But Paul also says, kind of in the everyday stuff of life on the block, pray for me, Paul says. In, in other words, the idea here is that Paul is on the front lines of all these missionary efforts of taking Christ, as it were, to the nations. And, and, and the point is 
this is that some will be sent to the front lines of missionary work to share Christ with others, and there's something incredibly important that you must be about. And Paul is saying, it's prayer. As one uh, individual, Phil Armstrong, he, he says it this way. He says, he, he actually directs church planning in unreached people group areas. And so he says this, he says, I never knew before how much is dependent upon a full cooperation with the Lord in prayer. Notice this, he says, God has in some sense limited himself to the scope of the prayers of his people as taught them by his Holy Spirit. What a partnership prayer is. In other words, many of you won't be on the front lines of great missionary endeavors, right? But God has made it such that as you live your life and the normal stuff of everyday life is that you would be one who actually has massive contribution because what God has determined is that in his omnipotence that he is one who's, who's narrowed, limited himself to work through your work of prayers as it relates to the missional front, right? So Paul is saying, pray for me because through your prayers, God's going to actually do things. He's going to open up doors to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. So Paul is saying, as you live on the block, hey, keep steadfast in prayer, be leaning into a relationship with the Lord, pray for those on the front line, and then finally, he says this, that you are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. In other words, you're to be re- you are to be ready by situation to situation to speak well of Jesus to others, right? And he actually refers to it as, as saltiness, graciousness and saltiness, right? Part of the, uh, one of the commentators had, had said, you know, the old adage of you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? Commentator said, well, according to Paul, you can, you can feed him some salt, which will make him thirsty, right? And the idea is, is that we likewise, as Christians, we have the opportunity to speak well of Christ. You can't ultimately save people. You can't ultimately bring them into a relationship with the Lord. That's God's doing, but you can make them thirsty for it. You can put Jesus up before them in such a way that says, oh man, yeah, I I want to explore this. I want to consider just who he is. So when it comes to life on the block, we're to continue steadfastly in prayer, right? Secondly, you get to pray for those on the front lines of mission elsewhere. But then finally, it's your opportunity to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, to be ready to speak a good word of Christ to those when they ask. This is kingdom life, as Paul would state it. Kingdom life, whether it's in the home, in the workplace, or on the block. One, one final word in all of this. Just last night, I'm praying, and Lord, what do you, what do you want for today? Um, and, and there was, uh, he just gave me a picture and brought my mind to a particular text. And the picture was that of a wheat field. And man, the, the wheat is just ready. It is ready. As, as Jesus says, you know, the fields are white unto harvest, right? And, and so he says, pray that laborers would come to bring in uh, the harvest. Um, and, and the impression from the Lord is that he was saying, um, in so many ways, my heart 
just to be straight, has been discouraged in different ways. Part of that is spiritual warfare. You wrestle through it, you know. Um, but in other, in, in other ways, specifically in how God was leading, there is a harvest before us. You know, as I, as I sat back and began thinking about it, it's like, man, living kingdom down, um, what we have the opportunity as a church, for instance, is there's 30 kids in this neighborhood regularly coming out to hang out, play some kickball, chill a bit, and then hear the gospel, right? There is a harvest of 30 <laughs> standing before us in some sense, right? Again, God, God has to do the work, but we can, we can make it salty, right? We can, we can make them thirsty and say, here, here who is who Jesus is, the one who ultimately has you in your greatest moments, who ultimately has you in your lowest places, and the one who actually has gone to that cross on your behalf, right? He's the one who's given of his life, in a sense, to be your friend, to be your family. So, folks, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you, as you think about home, workplace, the block, be thinking about the harvest that stands before you, whether it's your kids in the home, right? Or whether it's your coworkers in the workplace, or whether it's just hanging out on the block. There's a harvest that stands before you. Our role isn't to just go... Bruh, barging in there, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Now, many times, it's to simply, like, begin a relationship of hearing from them. We were down in Orlando. I got a, I got my first tattoo. Uh, um, but as we're sitting there in the, uh, in the chair, um, you know, begin talking with it. This guy's from Pittsburgh. Um, it's like, oh, man, Pittsburgh, what in the world are you doing in, in Orlando? Said, my uh, friends were, we're passing away from heroin. I was losing too many friends. I had to get away. So as we began talking, there were questions about the tattoo, which has to do with Jesus. And uh, he said, yeah, I know about Jesus. It's like, oh, man, um, what's the story here? Sure enough, grew up Catholic, had uh, really hard experiences growing up in the Catholic Church. And, and pretty much saying, hey, I respect you for where your belief is, but if that's Jesus, I don't want anything to do with him. Mm. And it was to say, just so you know, in this world, there are many different versions of Jesus. Many different versions of Jesus. So it was just a moment of saying, hey, man, like, reconsider him. Right? Don't, don't kind of leverage the, the meaning that you've experienced from, from other places. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so there's the opportunity. There's opportunity again and again, whether you're sitting in the tattoo chair or whether you're at work or whether you, wherever you may be, God's at work. He's gone before you. He's with you. He's in you, right? There will be opportunity to speak and see a harvest brought in for his own glory. It's kingdom life, kingdom life in the home, workplace, and on the block. Let's have a word of prayer. Jesus, we right now honor you as king over all. And even as we transition now to take the elements from communion, Jesus, we thank you that as the one who sits upon the throne, 
we recognize that your rule, your reign, is not one of dominance and might, but of one of self-sacrifice. You have given yourself for us, your body broken, your blood shed for our good. Jesus, thank you that as you sit upon that throne, thank you that even as judgment day will come one day, that you will bear your hands before us and say, this one is mine, not because of anything that we have done, but because of all that you have done on our behalf. So God, thank you for your endless grace, for your endless mercy, and even now in the interim, before we come there, we pray that you would make us a people who shine brightly for you within the home, in the workplace, and on the block. Jesus, we pray that you would receive your glory, that the lamb who, would, who was slain would receive the reward of your suffering and seeing many trust into you and find that you are good, you are kind. So Jesus, we pray that you'd be glorified in our hearts and our minds, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. What I'm going to ask as we look into singing a final song, um, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, there is no, no shame in being open and honest about that. That is a good thing to be like, hey, I'm not there. Uh, that is a good thing. But if you're not there, I'd encourage you not to participate in the elements uh, this morning. Um, what the Bible says is that actually confuses things doesn't make sense. Um, so to be honest with where you're at is actually a far better thing than just say, be open and honest about it uh, and refrain from the elements here. Um, but for those of you who know the Lord, the mark with them, uh, this is our opportunity to take and to remember just who he is as the one who's seated on his throne, who is then directing us, whether it's in the home, workplace, or on the block, he's directing us his kingdom to be seen and known through us. So I would encourage you as you come and take the elements, you take them to your seat, you take them on your own, that you think about perhaps the harvest field that stands before you. Who are those faces? Right? Who are those faces that God's put you next to? Perhaps to share the good news of Jesus with them. And I'd, I'd do the work of intercession. If God determines to work through our work of prayer to open doors on the front line of the mission field, he can work through our prayers to open up a door of communicating the gospel to our friends, right? So take these elements, remembering the grace and mercy that you've received, but also then utilize it as an opportunity to intercede for the good of those who don't know him yet, right? So let's go ahead and stand. Grab the elements and you can take them at your seat.